Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, Episode 10. Keep the animals you can feed, which I kind of talked about that earlier, is overgrazing. Basically, I feel like almost any problem you have on your farm can be tied to overgrazing, overstocking. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. On today's episode, we talk with Michelle Lancaster of Spirited Rose Homestead Dairy Farm. We cover topics of dairy cows, planting alfalfa, breeds of sheep, and wool production, as well as using what you have. Before we talk to Michelle, if you're new here, go ahead and subscribe. If you've been here a while, leave a review and share an episode. If you're not following us on social media, Go to grazinggrass.com to link to our social media accounts. Without further ado, let's talk to Michelle. Michelle, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass podcast. Thank you. Can, to get started, can you tell us about yourself and your operation? Sure. Uh, my name is Michelle Lancaster, and my husband Jay and I operate Spirited Rose Farm in Washington State. We're both born and raised in Washington. Uh, we used to have a hundred cow dairy and we like to joke that we make more with two cows than we did with a hundred. <laughs> uh, about eight yeah. years ago we we moved um, to eastern Washington and we actually live right next to my parents. They have around a hundred acres and kind of in the middle of that we have basically a 10 acre field. We have our two dairy cows and we keep some chickens and sell eggs and a few other farm products. We have apple cider seasonally and different things like that. With our cows, um, primarily we sell breeding stock. We have registered jerseys. Oh yes. Did you have jerseys when you all had the big dairy? We did. Uh, my husband was born and raised with Guernseys in Squim, Washington. Oh, yes. And transitioned to Jerseys in, I believe, the 90s and switched completely to Jerseys. They're um, reproductively just very efficient and they're smaller, very environmentally friendly, I like to say. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes. Lots of cream, butterfat. So we just really like yeah. it. We love the Jersey cow. Oh, very good. And you have sheep in addition to your cows? We do, yes. So a few years, let's see, about six years ago, we decided to get some sheep. I wanted something that I could work with that was my size. I can pretty much do everything on my own if I need to. And um, so we shear our sheep and we've butchered some and they're registered border lesters. So we also sell some breeding stock there. And they actually really help out with the pasture, which we can talk about later. They uh, oh, are very okay. complementary to the dairy cows. Very good. Tell us a little bit more about your climate there in eastern Washington. It's uh, dry. <laughs> we get okay. um, maybe 16 to 18 inches in a bad year. And in a really good year, we get about 28 inches of precipitation. Um, in the summer, we have about three months where we pretty much don't get any rain. 
So we've had to learn how to deal with that. We don't have irrigation either. So that's been, I think that's slowed our pasture progress. And then in the winter, we have to feed hay. We have basically from October through April, we're um, on hay. The cows are in the barn. And um, this year we're doing bale grazing with the sheep, trying that out. So they don't have to be in the barn. But yeah, definitely limited pasture where we are. So that surprises me about your rainfall in eastern Washington. Uh, Obviously, I've not visited there, so I just thought Washington was a little bit wetter. So you're thinking Seattle? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The Cascade Mountain Range splits the state uh, almost in half, and um, you couldn't get much more different between the two states. The west side is very wet, very liberal. The east side is extremely conservative. And you go from basically desert in south central Washington up to where we are, they call us the the gateway to the Rockies. So we're heavily treed, evergreen, um, but not as much moisture and a lot more rain and colder weather where we're at. Oh, yes. We're actually, we're only 45 minutes from the Canadian border where we're at. And we're about 45 minutes from Idaho. So we're kind of up in a far corner where if you think northern Idaho, that's more what you would picture where we're at. Oh, okay. How high are you on elevation? We are about uh, 2,400 feet where we're at okay. here. We are on the north-facing slope, and we are on um, Old Dominion Mountain. So that also gives us some fun challenges. <laughs> oh, yes, it would. Yes. What kind of forages do you have? Uh, One thing we're lucky that we have is we have sub-irrigated pastures. So we pretty much have moisture in the ground through the end of July, at least, that we can work off of. Sometimes it's even above ground moisture that we have to work around in the center of the field. Oh, yes. That allows us to grow some different pasture grasses than other places in our area could grow. Um, So I know uh, some people think of it as a terrible weed to get rid of, but we have primarily reeds canary grass. And my theory when we moved here was um, let's work with it. And if our cows can milk off of it, then it's good enough. And so the cows don't love it. It's not their favorite, but we clip it and we manage it and we keep it as palatable as possible. And they milk really well off of it, we feel. Uh, we don't feed grain at all in the summer months. So if a cow can maintain body condition, eating that as her primary grass, I think that um, it's working. Yes, it is. Yeah. We have planted a lot of Ladino and Alcite clover, mostly um, just um, broadcast seeding that. Oh, yes. And. There are a bunch of different grasses, just kind of whatever's grown throughout the years. It's been a field for at least probably 50 years. It's been cleared. It's been worked in the past. I didn't know that when we first moved here, but we've learned that from prior owners that they used to plant wheat and things like that out in the field. And so the last couple of years, we've started trying to rehabilitate more of the land. I was afraid we were going to till and just till up a bunch of rocks and have a big mess. And I was afraid (laughs) of doing that. 
but we found that we started with pigs and they did a good job getting rid of um, some thistles and just some really nasty roots that we didn't want around. And then we planted some dryland grass mixes and threw in some legumes there. They've worked pretty well, but they're not overly palatable either. And so my focus now is getting feed that the animals are just going bonkers over that they really want to eat. And one thing that we do there is uh, we annual crops with oats and barley that provides oh, yeah. some good extra forage. It's really in its peak when the grass is saying it's too hot and we don't want to grow because we have mostly cool season grasses. And we've been using those also as cover crops for more permanent pasture. Last year we did maybe half an acre to an acre of sainfoin and then the same amount in uh, alfalfa. And in hindsight, I wish like with the with the pandemic and everything, it was hard to get seed. I wish oh, that yes. we could have done done a bigger variety of crops, um, like not just alfalfa, but maybe an alfalfa grass mix with some taproot crops and things like that. But that's for next year. Yes, there's always next year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you plant? these like your alfalfa how did you plant that did you till it in so uh at first um when we first started out we had absolutely nothing we had a push mower and we had pigs and so the pigs actually do a really good job and then we hooked up the harrow to my pickup truck <laughs> because oh, that's yes. what we had and we used yes. that to harrow it and then we hand seeded the whole thing and raked it because I guess we're crazy, but that's all we had. We didn't have any money. You have to use what you have. Yeah, and it worked. It's rehabilitated some of the areas, so it was a start. My dad, who lives next door, has fixed up uh, an old Ford tractor, and he's found a disc and a couple harrow pieces. And yep. so when we did the alfalfa and the sainfoin this year, uh, we waited just until the ground had thawed, one area hadn't even thawed, so we had to come back and work it again later. And so we're just disturbing the very top of the soil. I don't want to be out there with a till right. or a plow right. tilling it up or anything like that. And we don't have access to a no-till drill or any type of drill. So this year we disked and harrowed and we put the oats in first because we put them in a little deeper. And then we kind of smoothed it down because the alfalfa seed needs to be really close. I think it was like five-eighths of an inch is the ideal depth, not very deep. Oh, yeah. And so we kind of sprinkled that on top, and we hand-raked it in again. And then we took our riding lawnmower. It has these really wide, kind of flat tires that um, they don't have a lot of tread on them, I mean. And so it was perfect. We just ran over the top of the ground a few times. And oh, the, yeah the mower did a good job of packing it because they say you want to pack the ground. So we're thinking, what do we have for a packing tool? We thought we're just going to use the mower. And it worked really well. We got a really good take on the alfalfa. And I'm not sure on the sainfoin. They say it takes two years to really let it come up. And so I'm, you know, we'll see next year what that one does. We might throw some more, some grasses and things in there to fill it out because it looks a little sparse maybe. On your alfalfa, were you able to graze it some this year? We did not. We were lucky that we we planted it in April, I believe, and then 
it was dry, dry, dry. And we thought, oh my gosh, we're going into a drought. We just <laughs> wasted all that alfalfa seed. And then uh, I don't remember because it's a while ago, but I believe we got six or seven inches of rain in June and July, which is very unusual for us. But I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah. the alfalfa ended up getting lots of moisture and then it dried out. And so I was worried about pasturing it and damaging it. So we left the alfalfa alone. We didn't touch it. And we left the oats alone that were in the alfalfa as a cover crop. And I was happy that we did that because come like August, uh, early September, we had had no moisture for probably two good months. And things dry out really fast here. We we dug a new standpipe and you go down three feet and it's just talcum powder. So oh, yes. I was glad that we didn't pasture it. And just looking through the oats, I could see that the alfalfa had come up and was just like in the pre-bloom stage before we had frosts. So I feel like that was probably a good stage to leave it in. Oh, yes. I was glad that we didn't pasture it. I don't know if that was right or wrong. We'll find out. <laughs> yes, uh, I hope it, it does really well for you next year. Thank you. We hope so, too. <laughs> so on your your other pasture and your alfalfa, what's your plan and how have you been utilizing that with the livestock? Do you mean just like our regular pasture? Yes. So are you rotating your cows through it? Or are yes. you moving them often? How often? It varies in season. So we have a the very first thing we did when we moved, we didn't even have the cows here yet we put in rotational paddocks because that's what we had on our large dairy and we really liked it. And we feel like you get a lot more feed and you have a lot more control over where the animals are pasturing. And so we put an alley in. And so we have a permanent alley that's been there these eight years that the cows walk back and forth from the paddocks. And the water trough is up close to the house. So when the cows come up for drink in the afternoon that's when we milk them and they're really good about coming up they know it's milking time oh, and yeah. so they'll just come out they'll hang out by the water trough and some people don't like that aspect of rotational pasturing that they can hang out up there but we do just because it makes it work out really well for milking time and that's in the summer in the winter they're in the barn and then they come down to be milked and so i think last year we had eight or nine large paddocks and then from there, I've divided them up into smaller paddocks. Um, I like what we do with the sheep better. I haven't figured out a way how to do that with the dairy cows. The nice thing about the sheep is they um, don't drink hardly any water. They get most of their moisture from the grasses. And so a little tiny trough, I can have them out in a spot and move them around. And I'm not having to lug water out there, move hoses oh, very yeah. often. And they're in the electric netting, so I can literally take them anywhere on our plot and say, ladies, you're stuck here, eat, you know, work <laughs> yeah. this down, Yeah. And, which is really good because the reeds canary grass grows like crazy. And so I can force the sheep to stay there for, you know, three to five days usually in a pen and then move them along. And the regrowth is really nice for the dairy cows. And I'm still trying to figure out, usually the cows move the paddocks each day. And as far as parasite control, that's not a very good method. And even for regrowth, it's not a perfect method. 
it's better than not rotationally grazing at all. Right. And um, this year, with the moisture that we got in the spring, we were able to pasture and rotate a lot more than we were in dry years, which was nice. Um, so the cows get to go through each of the paddocks several times, and we are able to block them off. So like each paddock, I can turn that into maybe three paddocks, and I haven't done the math on it, but... You know, my goal is eventually to have maybe the equivalent of 30 paddocks or something oh, yes. so that we can rotate them through and not have to come back. Cows, parasite-wise, we're a dry enough climate. And now that the cows are, one's almost three, and then the other one is four and four and a half. And so they're getting older now to where parasites aren't much of an issue for them. And with the sheep, I c we can move them as fast as we want to. And then fun thing is we have just the right amount of sheep that they pasture pretty much everywhere in the pasture once per season. So they never oh, okay. have to go back to a spot. And I haven't dewormed them now since I believe January of 2018. So oh, very nice. I've been pretty, I've been pretty excited about that. Yes. And they're just very healthy. <laughs> well, good, good. On your fencing, you used the electro net for your sheep. Yes. What did you make your paddocks out of? Well, that's kind of a funny story. When we were starting that, we were putting up our exterior fence, and the neighbor came over and he goes, oh, what are you trying to keep in? You've got one strand of electric. What do you think is going to stay in that? And we said, well, our, <laughs> our dairy cows. And he laughed at us and he walked away and he just, ha, 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 ha. No animal's going to stay in one <laughs> strand of electric netting. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're dairy cows. They don't want to go anywhere. And one thing you learn oh, with yes. them is, you know, if the cows get out, you don't chase them. A few seconds later, they're going to come running back and be like, oh, no, what happened? We need to come home. We're afraid. <laughs> they're, they're pretty chicken. So right. they're not trying to get out. We don't keep a bull. We do AI. So we don't have too many concerns like that. We don't have a lot of neighbors with bulls. And if they do, we can just push them out and close the gate. And uh, we've never had it, an issue with the cow getting bred by a neighbor bull or anything like that. Oh, yeah. And we're off the road. We're protected. We're not next to a major highway. Or we're a mile from the highway. Oh, yeah. So we've had the cows get out on the county road a couple of times, <laughs> but they just wander back and people are good. Yeah. And that's more just they... They get out of their permanent paddock in the wintertime sometimes because the snow gets high and then they're insulated and they don't get shocked by the electric. Oh, yes. And they learn that after a while. But out in the pasture, that's just in the summertime. And so everything is single strand electric. We have T-posts and some wooden posts for the exterior fences. And then the whole interior, we've been moving to just those little rebar posts. Oh, yes. They're three or four feet long and they're pretty easy to move. And so when I'm out there having to mow or do anything, it's nice to be able to move those. And then during the season, if a particular area is starting to get a little overgrazed, I can just bump the fence over. It's very hilly and uneven. So I can't use those roller where you can roll your fence line. I'd love oh, to yeah, have those, real? but it wouldn't be practical here. Yes. Yeah. So are your single wires high tensile wire or is it twine? Or polybraid? It's just that um, Gallagher aluminum wire. Oh, okay. So it's like high conductivity. And when the deer break it, it kind of just bounces. And then you can go and fix it real easy. Oh, very good. It's very, yeah, very low tech. What matters is that it works. It does. It works very well. Yes. 
So, and sometimes people think, you know, you have to spend a lot of money to have a good fence, but that hasn't been our experience. Oh, yes. And we're, we're lucky where we're at, too. You know, we have kind of natural fences and trees around us. But, um, yeah, simple is sometimes best. On your electric fence, what kind of energizer are you running? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, it's just a Gallagher. We like Gallagher. We had a nice fencer a few years ago, and then the neighbor's house got hit by a lightning strike, and we lost our fencer. So oh, no. actually what we're using now is just one that a friend gave us. Um, I know the one for the cows in the winter cow yard is it's actually a dog and cat fencer, oh, yes. which, again, funny story. The guy at the feed store, he's. The, I said, do you think this would keep a cow in? I mean, it's just a small, dry lot. And he laughed at me. No, that's for dogs and cats. They never keep a cow in. It it keeps the cows in. They do great. Well, very good. <laughs> have you ever measured the voltage on the fence? Uh, we just have all those little cheap fence testers, and I just make sure that it's green or whatnot. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll, my husband will you know, take a gate handle off and just test and make sure it's clicking. Oh, yes. And if the cows or the sheep get out then we go, Oh, the ground rods are dry. And we run over, we dump some water on them. Oh, yes. So electricity is not our expertise. <laughs> so I feel kind of like an idiot about it, but it's just, it's a cow fence charger. And um, I do like having the Gallagher wire because I think it's more forgiving. My dad has the, just the old fashioned heavy duty steel wire. Oh, yes. And it doesn't conduct as well. And it's very difficult to fix. Oh, yes. And so I think by spending a little bit more on the the aluminum wire, that saved us a lot of hassle. Very good. Very good. And on your energizer, the most important part is your animals are staying in. So if it's working, wonderful. Yes. And it's um, the kind that clicks. It's not a continuous fencer. Um so you get a, a relief break if they are right. if they do hit it. And I wanted something very low key. Uh, I don't want somebody coming out. We ha we have people coming out to the farm every day. I don't want some kid to wander up to it and get killed by an electric fencer. You know, they give you that warning when you get the electric netting for the sheep that you know a child touched his head on this and died. And so that well, I don't want anything like that. I want right. as low as possible that keeps the cat. And that's pretty much what we've tried to do. Yes. I think we talked about watering. You've got a watering trough for your cows. And then for your sheep, you've got a portable tub you take out with them. And with sheep, it's much yes. easier. Yes. And one, one thing I really like about the watering is we get just the little automatic float valve oh, yes. that you hook on. So we have a, a spigot right next to the water trough for the cows. And we leave the automatic float. And so I just check it. If it starts to get mosquito larvae or something, we dump it and clean oh, it yes. out. But it stays pretty clean. And then it just automatically refills all the time. And it's funny because the cows are afraid of it in the spring <laughs> oh, yes. when it spurts water. <laughs> they have to get used to it every year. <laughs> but the sheep love it, too, because sheep are very persnickety. They don't want warm water. And sometimes they'll refuse the water if they're like, this water has been here two days. This is not good enough. <laughs> yes. The nice thing have a little teeny water bucket with the float attached to it then every time the sheep drink it's adding some more cool water and i think that their water intake is better that way oh yes another question is about your breeds now we talked about your jersey cows 
but your sheep, why did you settle on your breed there? And I'm trying to think it's um, what breed of sheep you have. Yes, it's hard to pronounce. It's Border Lester. Border Lester. English breed. Are, are they yes. the ones with a, a wool, but their head is pretty well, no wool in their head? So, yes, that's one thing we love about them. They're called clean-headed oh, okay. and clean-legged. I got a Romney when we first started out, and trying to shear her legs and shear around her eyes, that'll about give you a heart oh, attack. Yes. You know, I, I get the scissors out because I'm just afraid I'm going to cut her eye or something. And then on the legs, they get so gummy. Oh, they're horrible. Oh, the yes. border lester is very clean. But they do have belly wool. We got a California red and she didn't have belly wool and the flies were just killing her all summer. And so she would she would lay down and eat pasture and then get up and move and lay down and eat pasture because the, the flies were bothering oh, yes. her. The border lester, they don't have that problem. They have belly wool. Um, so it's funny little things like that. That is, We started out with a bunch of different breeds and the Icelandic were too skittish for us and too small. Oh, yeah. They didn't quite have a marketable size carcass for us. And um, <clears throat> nothing was purebred in the area. And we're not snobs about that, but we love genetics. We love to, what what's this ram going to do with this ewe? And will the fleece be better? Will the carcass be better? So we just like having a little more um, control over that. And oh, with yes. purebred animals... You know, you, you know the genetics. So same with our jerseys. I kind of know pretty much what I'm going to get by the, how we made them. Oh, yes. And uh, the border lesters are also probably one of the biggest things. They're a great, um, people use them for crossbreeding all the time because they're really an all-purpose kind of a breed. They put an equal emphasis, pretty equal emphasis on the fiber and the conformation. And so you can show them as a meat animal or you can show them as a fiber animal. And a lot of breeds are only one or the other. Oh, yes. So if you get a Suffolk, that's a meat breed. The wool is not utilized by most people. Um, whereas if you get a Shetland, they don't have any meat on them. Oh, yes. They're tiny, um, but they have beautiful fiber. And so with the Border Lester, we can get both. If somebody, like this year, again, back to the pandemic, but... We sold a ton of sheep, and I, I wish we had more because people, um, nicely, they wanted breeding stock this year, but they want to start raising their own animals and having their own meat supply. They can do that with the breed that we have. I'm not just marketing to hand spinners or oh, yes. you know people that want the fiber to process. And they're really good mothers. Um, some breeds, they just don't know what they're doing, or you just hear about it, if you're a shepherd, you have to live out with the sheep all all during lambing season. And we did that with pigs. And that's why we stopped having <laughs> pigs, because we couldn't stand the farrowing time. Oh, yes. Well, with the border lester, the border lester, she just she cries for a minute. She has her lamb and they're nine to ten pounds up to we had one that was 17 oh, wow. pounds. Poor you. And they have singles or or uh, twins and they never have pretty much never have triplets. So they're very easy keepers. Um, we don't feed grain, so we need sheep that aren't having triplets. Oh, yes. And so they're just, a, they're a very easy breed and just really good personality. They have those big bunny ears. <laughs> and <laughs> they love people. A lot of sheep breeds are afraid of people and border esters. They'll run up to you and say hi. Oh, yes. So there's just a lot of good things about them. Well, very good. Very good. 
Now, where do you all see yourself going in the future? You Do you see expanding your number of cows or your sheep or both if you have the land available? Um, so that's, it's a good question. Um, it's kind of that bigger is better idea. And my theory is smaller is better. Oh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> Everybody to expand. And when we first moved here, we, we had six cows and I'm not sure what we were thinking because in this climate, you know, maybe other people do it, but you're basically overgrazing year round and that's not cost effective. And right. that's something my husband, when we were talking about, about this podcast, he said, you know, you should mention, I wish that we had done things differently when we had a hundred cows to be focused more on keeping the amount of cows that he could feed on the land that he had. And so if you say, what's our goal going forward, our goal is not necessarily more animals, but bringing in less from outside the farm. So trying to be more sustainable on our farm. I do want to re-increase our sheep flock. We're down to four or five ewes. And um, I just had the opportunity to sell so many this spring that I thought, oh, I'll sell all my older ewes. And and uh, it's yes. easy enough to build back up your sheep flock. So we'll work on that the next couple of years and get back up to six or eight ewes probably. Two cows is perfect for our farm because even in a drought year, we can pasture them throughout the full season. And so I have no stress about making sure that we have enough feed for the animals. And that's more important than getting every bit of feed off the land. Um, I would say our way of increasing would be um, like that alfalfa plot. I'm not going to go throw the cows out on that and say, here, pasture this bloat today. Um, so I'd love, <laughs> I'd love right. to be able to hay it. And so if I see uh, my idea of our, the progress on our farm would be being able to harvest a little bit of our feed. Mostly would be first cutting. And then if we have plots like the alfalfa is to just make a little bit of hay off of that. And then the first cutting reed canary grass, just to get some of that initial growth off of there, we get so much growth that it ends up, you know, you go out and you clip what the animals haven't eaten but it kind of bogs down the grass underneath it. And so we need to find a way to utilize some more of that. You're getting to the point where you're mulching and fertilizing enough with leftover grass and the manure and all that. We need to take more off of it, which is a sign to me that we're doing a better job with the land that, you know, the grass is wanting to grow more. Yes. It's, it's a good problem to have. Oh yes, definitely. And I think you bring up a, a very good point because everyone's like, well, I can run a few more cows. I can do a little bit more. And you have to be careful to maintain that grass because without the grass, well, you're not grazing any animals. Mm -hmm. So you've got to manage that grass. Yes. Well, Michelle, we're at the part of our podcast where we ask our famous four questions. Okay. They're the questions we ask to all of our guests. And our first one is, what's your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Sure. Um, so I've actually found two just fairly recently. Some friends put me onto one, and that's Dale Strickler. He wrote a book called Managing Pasture. It's come out recently. The really nice thing about that is he has lots of pictures and he breaks down all the different grasses and how they're important. Um, and it's also um, 
more focused towards dryland type climates. So for in general, um, it, it gives you an idea of what grasses might actually survive potentially in our climate. Um, the downside for me is that I feel like it's a little bit more beef focused or, you know, meat animal oh, yes. focused. So I also like um, Sarah Flack a while ago wrote a book called The Art and Science of Grazing. And she okay. has examples from a lot of farms in there. They're pretty much, I don't know if they're all dairy farms or most of them are. And so because we have dairy cows and we're like, well, how does this apply to a dairy cow? I'm not going to go out and winter stockpile because my dairy cows would just wither away and die. And so the nutritional value just isn't there for a cow that's milking, regardless of how much she's milking. And so advice like that doesn't work for our particular situation. And so Sarah's book is nice. Also in that we're sub-irrigated, she's more referencing irrigated pastures. So they're kind of the two, between the two, I can get a lot of good ideas. I feel like half our pasture is irrigated and half's not. And so I can use the book, both of the books. Very good. I'm, I'm not familiar with the second book, uh, Dale Strickler's book. That's one of those books I have in my bookcase. I use for a reference material quite often. Yes, it's a great book. Our next question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? Probably a silly question or answer, but um, I guess our, our lawnmower, we don't have um, a tractor of our own. We have to borrow my dad's and borrow his brush hog and all that. And so we have a lawnmower that you can put on the highest setting and I can go out and I can clip the areas with that. And oh yes, every time we're moving the sheep, I can clip, clip the perimeter. Um, I guess the electric netting for sheep would probably be the one thing I couldn't live without because you really can't, you can't pasture sheep in one string electric netting. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I've not figured that one out either. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our next question, what would you tell someone just getting started on this journey of becoming a grass farmer? So our advice uh, that we normally give, just our generic advice to people wanting to farm is keep the animals you can feed, which I kind of talked about that earlier, is overgrazing. Basically, I feel like almost any problem you have on your farm can be tied to overgrazing, overstocking. You know, why, why do all my calves have coccidiosis? Do you always have them in the same spot year after year and you have 20 of them on half an acre? That's your problem. It's not the land. It's that the land can't recuperate. Um, and then I guess just um, the other one would be kind of curb your excitement. We see so many people that they jump in and they get animals maybe – so we breed cows AI for people in the area. And so we see a lot of different farms outside of just our own or people coming here. We've been to farms where they don't have a home, but they have a milk cow. And they're, you know, putting the cart before the horse kind of a thing. <laughs> um, yes. Maybe you should just get a goat to start with, you know, find a goat that milks good. And, and then you have your milk supply, but she's a little goat. She can live in a dog house if she has to kind of a thing, but a dairy cow is a huge commitment. So think about that. Don't just jump into it. Or we see farms where we have to be self-sufficient. So we have to have beef cows. We have to have dairy cows. We have to have sheep. We have to have chickens. We have to have pigs. And they overwhelm themselves and 
six months to 12 months later, they're back in the city and they're worn out. And so I would say, like, you know, get three chickens and start there. If that works, then get a <laughs> sheep or a goat. If that works, get some pigs and build on because you need to learn from your experience with all of them and kind of build up your expertise instead of jumping in, you're going to end up uh, losing a lot of money. Excellent advice. Yes. I have to take that advice and remind myself. My wife tells me I want to jump off the deep end all <laughs> the time. So where can others find out more about you? We have a website called um, it's spiritedrose.wordpress.com. And I'm too cheap to pay for one. But on the other hand, everything on there is free. My husband's been milking cows since he was about 14 years old. And I, when I met him, I thought, oh my gosh, you have all this knowledge and it, you know, people could really benefit from this. And then I got a surge belly milker and the guy at the dairy tech, he said, just throw these away. They're obsolete. Well, now, you know, I could get a fortune for them. Everybody's wanting them. <laughs> Yes. Well, at the time when I first got one, you couldn't find information anywhere about fixing them up or anything. And so I had to just learn all that. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start a website. So spiritedrose.wordpress.com. And then we just published our very first book. We just self-published it. And you can oh, very nice. get that through our website as well. We will post links to that in our show notes. All right. Thank you. Well, Michelle, we really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us today. Thank you for having us. It's been fun. You just listened to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. Until next time, keep grazing. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.